Yes, Rosenchek is my last name. It has an H on the front. I have no idea why. <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, but apparently someone in the past decided it should be there, and it's, it's there. Um, fortunately, I was able to find Ignite Church. Uh, my wife works pretty much next door at OSF St. Francis. And uh, so she showed me where Ignite is, because it's not one of the two malls. I'm pretty much lost when it comes to Peoria. And uh, Deb works as a fertility care practitioner. So what she does is she um, basically helps young couples achieve pregnancy. So that's really kind of a ministry in itself, and I'm really proud of, of what she does there. And uh, I also am in the medical field myself. People always ask me whenever I speak somewhere, are you a pastor? And no, I'm not. I'm, I'm an ordained teaching elder, and that's pretty much what I do at Bethel Baptist Church in Galesburg. But as far as a profession, I'm a radiation therapist, and I have been so for all of my adult life. In fact, this is my 31st year as a radiation therapist, which means I'm old. <laughs> or at least I'm getting old, let's put it that way. Um, so my passion really is ministry, it's my, my teaching ministry uh, that I um, do with Pastor Lee Johnson, who will be with you on Sunday delivering the sermon. Um, so the two of us uh, pretty much team teach on the different books of the Bible. And what I like to do in my classes is uh, stress Christian evidences. That's kind of my, my passion in ministry. That's what gets me really excited and ignited, so to speak, uh, for the Lord. So uh, we will have a little bit of that today uh, because our topic is how Jesus Christ changed the world. Now, we all know as individual believers that Jesus Christ changes lives. We know that because uh, of what Jesus Christ has done for us personally. And we know that Jesus Christ changes congregations. And uh, I understand that you as a congregation went out into the community, I believe just last week, and served for the Lord. So congratulations to you. Um, I have heard, as I mentioned uh, earlier to several people, I've heard great things about this church, how you go out and serve the, the community for Christ. So, um, so we know that as individuals, Christ changes lives. And as congregations, Christ has a great work within us as a body. But what I want to talk about today is how Jesus Christ changed human history itself. How for the past 2,000 years, the world is a much better place because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So that's the topic this morning. And uh, let me see if this... I did it. I can't believe that. That's amazing. It's just a click of a button, but it never seems to work for me. I, I, I seem to be impaired technologically, which is kind of scary considering what I do for a living. Um, here we have a picture of the Apostle Paul preaching the message of the cross in Athens, Greece to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And the reason that the Apostle Paul and us today go out into the world and preach the message of the cross is because Jesus actually commanded us to do that. In Mark chapter 16, we read that Jesus told his disciples to go out into all the world and preach the message of the gospel to all creation. And uh, Jesus was telling his disciples that 2,000 years ago, but really he's telling us that today because uh, this is what we do based upon his command. And uh, what Jesus was saying is, whether it's walking across the street or going halfway across the world, you need to go out and preach the message of the gospel to everyone who needs it. Which, by the way, is everyone, the entire world. And uh, I believe that our sharing our faith with others is uh, something that we should be doing uh, more fervently, more in intentionally than ever before. And the reason for that is because the skeptical world has really gained a lot of momentum in the last several years, even the last few decades. And what I mean by the skeptical world is I mean that 
group of people, that very large group of people, who believe that religion is bad, especially Christianity. They believe that uh, the world would be a much better place had Jesus Christ never been born in the first place. And uh, many of them are atheists, but some are just people who doubt in the existence of God. So because of the skeptical world gaining momentum, we need to be on our game, so to speak. We need to be sharing our faith uh, more intentionally than ever. And uh, here I have a uh, picture of the book, God is Not Great, by Christopher Hitchens, one of the uh, was one of the leading skeptics in the world today. And the subtitle of his book really kind of tells the story, at least what, what he believed, how religion poisons everything. So Christopher Hitchens believed that uh, the world would be a much better place had Christianity never been founded, had Jesus Christ never been born. And uh, as an unfortunate side note, uh, Christopher Hitchens passed away a few years ago after a very brave battle with cancer, which means he now knows the answer to the question, does God exist? But that is not the way to find out. That is not the way to know that God exists and Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So it's just, it's just very unfortunate. But that is the claim that Christopher Hitchens pushed in his many books, the world would be better without Christianity. And there are countless skeptics today who believe that and preach that. So we have to preach the message of the cross because we have that opposition in place. Let's take a look at a few quotes from other skeptics as well, just to kind of uh, give us an idea of what's going on out in the world today, kind of give us an idea of the spiritual landscape, so to speak. Uh, Richard Dawkins is really the uh, preeminent atheist in the world today. And, and what I mean by that is if you were to ask atheists worldwide, who's the number one atheist? Who's kind of your hero, so to speak? Probably most people would say Richard Dawkins. He's a uh, retired uh, Oxford zoology professor, and really his mission is to spread the message of atheism. And his claim is that Religion poisons everything, just as it was the claim of Christopher Hitchens. And Dawkins says that faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. So what Dawkins is saying is that Christianity has uh, intellectually um, stifled the world. We're not as smart as we would be had Christianity never been born. The world is not better off because of Christianity, but instead worse off. And you've, maybe some of you have heard the old saying, skeptics say you have to check your brains at the door when you come to church. Has anyone here ever heard that? Show of hands. It's not true. We're gonna see that here in a little bit, how that's not true. In fact, the opposite is just the case, but that is the claim of so many skeptics. George Carlin, uh, the late George Carlin, the comedian, uh, a lot of people don't realize he was a staunch uh, atheist. He was very devoted to the atheist worldview. And Carlin once said, if you can't understand science, choose religion. And that's basically his way of saying, religion is for dummies. But science, that's for atheists, people that think. Uh, so once again, saying as others have said, uh, before and after him, Christianity has stifled the intellectual progress of the world. Bill Maher, um, I don't know if I pronounce his name right, but then again, nobody can pronounce my name right either, so I guess it doesn't matter. Um, Bill says, we're a nation that is unenlightened, or dumb, I guess that's a, a, another way of saying dumb. We're a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. I think religion stops people from thinking. So it's really kind of saying the same thing that Richard Dawkins and George Carlin have said, that uh, Christianity has stifled the um, intellectual progress of the world. Penn Jillette from the uh, duo Penn and Teller, 
who I'm barely familiar with, uh, but I do know that both are uh, staunch skeptics. Penn Jillette says, atheism is the absence of religion. That's not really true, but uh, that's a, another point, and I don't really have time to go into that. Um, he continued, continuing on, he says, we don't really need atheism, we just need to get rid of religion. So, uh, Gillette's saying that if we just got rid of religion in general, Christianity in particular, well, the world would be so much better off. And you know who the most successful atheist in the 20th century was? It wasn't a, a professor of philosophy or a, a great scientist. Well, we're not going to know because this thing won't advance. There we go. Whoa, whoa. It got crazy on me. John Lennon. John Lennon was really the most successful atheist because he was so wildly popular because he had the attention of the, the public eye. In uh, John Lennon's song, Imagine, which I think most of us are familiar with, it's, uh, you know, most of the Beatles songs were fantastic. This one, I don't really agree with the words, uh, but it was wildly popular. John Lennon said, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. You know, it's not really easy, though, because King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that God has set eternity in the human heart. Okay, in other words, God has hardwired us to know that there is a life after this life is over. That the afterlife does exist. So it's not really easy to imagine there's no heaven because God's hardwired it into us to know there is. But that's, that's maybe besides the point. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, if you don't believe there's an afterlife, you better live for today because that's all there is. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and just like Penn Jillette said, no religion too. Let's get rid of religion. That's kind of the, the skeptical claim. So the skeptical claim is that the world would be a better place had Christianity never existed. But of course, the Christian claim is that Christ changed the world for the better in every conceivable way. So the question that we're going to take a look at here is, would the world be a better place had Christ never existed, had Christ not been born into the world, or is it just the opposite? Has Christianity made the world a better place? So that's what we're going to take a look at now is different areas in which Christianity has changed the world. And uh, spoiler alert, okay, Christianity has changed the world for the better in every conceivable way. I know you guys already know this. But we need to, you know, be up on this kind of information because if you haven't yet encountered a skeptic who says, you know, the world would be a better place if Christianity were not a part of it, you, you probably will at some point in the future. So... As believers, we need to be equipped. We need to be able to respond to this type of claim. Just out of curiosity, not that I can see with this light in my, my eyes, but that's okay. Um, don't do anything with that. But just out of curiosity, has anybody here ever encountered a skeptic that has made this claim before? Okay, yeah, okay. So there's at least a few of you already who've skeptics saying this. Okay, let's take a look at how Christianity has changed the world. First of all, Christians have always opposed the hopelessness of death. Now, in the ancient Roman Empire, which was the world that Jesus was born into, the pagan world, which was pretty much the Greeks and the Romans and everybody except the Jews, believed one of three things about the afterlife. Uh, the first thing that many people believed is that life ends in the grave. Okay, once you die, that's it. Game over. Sayonara. You know, there's other cliches I could come up with. But that was a very popular belief. Life ends in the grave. So there is no afterlife. Other people thought, well, if there is an afterlife, 
I don't know if I'll make it in. I don't think everybody does make it to the afterlife, so there was no certainty there. Not a certainty like we as Christian believers have, knowing that there is an afterlife and we will go there, and it's going to be awesome. And the third thing is, many people believe, well, if there is an afterlife and I make it in to the afterlife, it might not be that great. It might not be, it might not be much better than this world is right now. And unless you were one of the um, social elites in the Roman Empire, life was not good. It was tough. Um, we have it bad now in many ways, but it was brutal at that time and place in history. So there was really not a lot of hope when it came to death. But Christianity was born, and Christianity changed everything. And we're going to take a look at some scriptures now that kind of teach us that. Um, first of all, I have 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, and that's really, that's the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. And uh, Paul wrote, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you, that is, some of you in the church in Corinth, actual professing Christians, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That kind of blows my mind. Now, when you go through a study on the books of Corinthians, you find that the Corinthian church was kind of a train wreck. Okay, they had a lot of problems. And I think really their, their main problem was that once they became Christians, they still held on to the pagan worldview in general. And the pagan worldview pretty much said, life ends at the grave, or you probably might not get into the afterlife, but if you do, it might not be that great. So not a lot of hope there. Epicurus was a, uh, a Greek philosopher who lived three centuries before the time of Christ, and he had a, a tremendous influence on the Greek and Roman world. And Epicurus said, death does not concern us because as long as we exist, death is not here. That's kind of brilliant. Uh, if we're alive, we don't worry about death because we're alive. And then once death does come, we no longer exist. Once death comes, we don't realize we're dead because we're dead. Life ends at the grave. And this philosophy permeated the Roman Empire at the time of Christ and Paul and the other apostles. Not a lot of hope in a philosophy like this. Okay, it's not the hope that we have as Christian believers. Aeschylus, another Greek thinker, said, when the dust has soaked up a man's blood, that is, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. He's saying the same thing that Epicurus said. And you know, this philosophy has come down to us even today. Our society still holds on to this philosophy. There are many people who believe this. Uh, John Paul Sartre, the French atheist, said, what is man but a little puddle of mud whose only freedom is death? Yeah, that's, there's a lot of hope there. That's just sad. But really, he was saying the same thing that Epicurus and Aeschylus and other Greek and Roman thinkers said millennia before him. Whenever I see that picture of John Paul Sartre, I always think he looks like the actor Steve Buscemi. I mean, looks just like, it's like, it's like there's a reincarnation thing going on, except I know there's no such thing as reincarnation, but it is weird. Um, and then Christianity was born. Jesus Christ came into the world, and everything changed. Death was hopeless before, but now death is hope-filled. Okay, Luke wrote, um, the story of Christ hanging on the cross. I love this story, this passage of scripture. We know the story, Christ is on the cross. There's a criminal on each side. One criminal is a skeptic. Okay, he's kind of the poster child for skepticism. The other criminal, he gets it. Okay, he knows that Jesus is the Christ. He understands who Jesus is. And the criminal that gets it, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. Epicurus couldn't have said that. Epicurus would have said just the opposite. But Jesus Christ changed everything, and for the better. Here's the most memorized verse in, I think, all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great eternal life. It's not going to be this ho-hum life, kind of like here, like the Greeks and the Romans thought. <clears throat> Paul wrote, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Life continues on after this life is over. And then lastly, Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what Paul was saying is, as long as I'm alive, as long as I'm living here on earth, I'm working for the kingdom of God. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm building up the kingdom here on earth for the afterlife. I'm, I'm evangelizing. I'm sharing the message of the gospel. And then when I die, then it's going to get really awesome because I'm going to be in paradise. I'm going to be in heaven with Christ himself. Christians, from the get-go, from the time the church was born, on the day of Pentecost, we can read about that in Acts chapter 2, Christians have always opposed abortion and infanticide. Now let me just kind of define a couple of terms here, which I think we, we know what they are. Abortion is uh, the termination of life prior to birth, and infanticide is the termination of life after birth. Or we can say abortion is murder before birth, and infanticide is murder shortly after birth. And uh, you know, today we think about um, in the in the West, in America, in the English-speaking nations of the world, we think of abortion, and that is predominant today in the West. Infanticide still still happens worldwide. In the Roman Empire, the world into which Jesus was born, uh, abortion existed. They actually had this practice in place. Mostly it was infanticide. And usually it was girls. When uh, an infant was, when a baby was born, and uh, they realized, well, this is a, a girl. We only, we kind of really only need one. Most families in the Roman Empire only raised one girl. Um, a lot of times that, that girl would be put out just like you would take the trash out. It's so sad. Christians, however, went out and risked their lives oftentimes to get these infants, to get these babies and save them. And so, you know, decades later, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, where are all the young ladies at? They're in Christian households. And the, the pagan men, the Greek and Roman men, are saying, hey, where's all the girls at? And they had to look to the Christian households. And a lot of these pagan men married these Christian girls, and then guess what? They converted to Christ because of their wives. So um, strange way that conversion takes place, but sometimes it happens in strange ways. So Christians have always opposed abortion and infanticide from the get-go because we know, based upon the scriptures, that life is a gift from God and we're created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, Moses wrote, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we're created in God's image. The psalmist wrote, For you have made mankind a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned us with glory and honor. So we're made in mankind's image, and we're crowned with glory and honor because of that. And the psalmist also wrote, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Okay, we're not an accident. We're not a biological accident. We were designed 
on purpose by God. No life is an accident. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why Christians risk life and limb to save these infants that were put out like we would take out the trash today. From the get-go, Christians cared for orphans and widows. And we always have, from the time that Christianity was born until the present time. Uh, in the Roman Empire, if you were an orphan, your life was tough, and you probably would not live to be very old. And if you were a widow, life was also difficult, especially if you had children. Christians came along, and they changed all of that. James, the earthly brother of Jesus, actually grew up in the same household as Jesus, even though he was a skeptic during Christ's earthly ministry. He eventually became convinced that his brother, his earthly brother, was the Christ. So he went from being a skeptic to the leader of the Jerusalem church, one of the greatest leaders in the very early days of Christianity. And James wrote, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So orphans and widows have benefited tremendously by the fact that Christianity is part of the world. Can be benefited by Christ and his teachings. Jesus promoted the equality of women. Now, I know there's a lot of people who would say, well, you know, there's some verses in Scripture that they don't seem very friendly to women, but that's a whole other topic, and we could spend a long time on that. Those were churches, those were letters written to specific churches addressing specific problems. But Christians have always promoted the equality of women because Jesus was the greatest liberator of women. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I, I love, this is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Paul is saying, there's no racial distinction in Christianity. Don't worry if someone's a Jew or a Gentile, if they're a Christian, they're a Christian. That's all that matters. Don't worry about slave or free. In other words, don't worry about class distinction. Don't worry about that. Everybody who calls himself or herself a Christian is on equal footing. And don't worry about male and female. Don't get worried about the whole gender distinction thing, which we have a big problem with in society today. Don't worry about that. Because any man or woman that calls himself or herself a Christian is on equal footing. <coughs> Christians have always opposed racism. We just saw that really in Galatians chapter 3. One of my uh, heroes, well, we're not going to see who my hero is because he's one of There we go. Uh, one of my heroes of the faith is a, a man uh, known to us as Justin Martyr. Martyr was not his last name, by the way. Okay, he earned that name the hard way, unfortunately, as did uh, hundreds and, in fact, thousands of people before and after him. Justin Martyr had been a philosopher before he became a Christian, and uh, he really was the, the greatest defender of the Christian faith after the time of Paul and the Apostles. But, but he had the heart of a pastor. Okay, he wasn't just some nerd in a classroom. Okay, he had the, the heart of a pastor. And, and Justin said, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country before we were Christian believers. Now, because of Christ, because of Christ coming into the world, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. Love it. The world needs us. The world needs to read what Justin Martyr wrote you know, almost 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> Christians from the get-go have always promoted equal justice. Life was tough and not fair in the Roman Empire. The 
the world that Jesus was born into. But Christians were always promoting equality, equal justice. Isaiah, going back to the, the Old Testament, said, learn to do right and seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Defend those who cannot defend themselves. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. So once again, care for orphans and widows. And of course, the earliest Christians, that was their scriptures, the Old Testament. So they locked on to the teachings of Isaiah and, and the other prophets. Christians have always promoted medical care. In fact, I would say Christianity is what has caused the medical field today as we know it. It was born out of the Christian attitude of care for others. And really, we need to look at the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. This is really why we have the medical field today, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think most of us know the story. Let me just give you the, the quick background. Um, a Jewish man is uh, beaten and robbed. He's left to die on the side of a road. A Jewish priest come by, comes by and he sees a man who's not going to make it unless he has some medical attention. And what's he doing? Just keeps on going. Just keeps on going. And then a Levite comes by. He sees the, the man lying there. He knows he's not going to make it. And what's he do? Keeps on going. Keeps on trucking down the road. And then a Samaritan comes by. Now let me just stop there. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans were neighbors, but they were also enemies. The Jews did not like the Samaritans because um, they were uh, mixed blood. They had a, a Jewish background, but they were not fully Jewish. Okay, there was, it was kind of a racism thing going on, unfortunately, at this time. And the Samaritans, because they knew they were despised by the Jews, they did not like the Jews. So it was just bad. It was just bad blood. It's unfortunate. But a Samaritan comes by, and he sees the Jewish man lying there, and he knows he's not going to make it. And what's he do? He shows compassion. He shows pity for the man. So the Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The priest and the Levite certainly did not. So the Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He's applying medical care. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Okay, that's kind of a really primitive version of the ambulance. And uh, brought him to an inn, kind of a really makeshift hospital, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. That's a, that's a good chunk of change. And he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have, unless Medicare or private insurance kicks in. Okay. And if that's the case, we're, we're going to be good. But uh, this, is where, this is where the medical field developed from, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when you look at hospitals today, you see hospitals with names like St. Francis, St. Mary's, St. Joseph, uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, St. Luke's. I mean, there's not every hospital has a, a Christian name, but many, many do. And it really, we look back to this parable. And you know, in, in the times of the, the Roman Empire, when plagues would break out, it was always Christians that took care of the sick people. They took care of their own sick, and they took care of the pagans who were sick, and oftentimes they died because they in turn were infected. Now what were the pagans doing? The pagans freaked out whenever there was a plague that broke out. In fact, pagans would take someone who was infected in their own home, and they would throw them out in the street just to get them out of the house. And the Christians would come along and grab these people and take care of them. And they might get infected and die because of it, but that's what they did. The Council of uh, Nysa, which was a, a council that took place in the Middle Ages, they determined, they decided that wherever there is a cathedral or a, a place of worship, there shall also be a hospice, or what we would call a hospital today. They got it. This council figured it out. 
care for the sick. Christians have always promoted education for all, male and female, across all races and creeds. Uh, Luke chapter 10, I love this passage. Um, as Jesus and his disciples uh, were traveling, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now in the ancient world, uh, the great teachers, you know, Socrates, Plato, their students sat at their feet. That was kind of the classroom back in the ancient world and, the, and even in the time of Christ. But they did not teach women, okay? Women were not to be educated in that way. But what's Jesus do? He welcomes Mary. He wants Mary to learn what he has to teach. You know, Jesus didn't say, you know, Mary, I'd love to teach you, but you're a woman. You're going to have to, you know, hightail it on down the road. That's not what he did. And then also in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is in Samaria. He's in the land of the people that the Jews hate. They despise the Samaritans, as I've already mentioned. And uh, we know the story of the woman from the well. She says to her fellow Samaritans, Jesus told me everything I ever did. Jesus knew her past because he's God. He knows in, in the beginning. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So Jesus taught women. He taught the Samaritans. He didn't care about gender. He didn't care about race. He taught people the message of what he was, was doing. Uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, when I read the quotes from Richard Dawkins and George Carlin and other skeptics that uh, they always say that uh, Christianity has stunted the intellectual growth of the world. But yet, when you look at the different branches of science, you find that the people that founded those branches of science were Bible-believing Christians. The, the various branches of science we have today are attributed to Christians who believe in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's just take a really quick look at uh, a few of these. Um, Francis Bacon, uh, a person who truly believed in intelligent design, uh, developed the scientific method. Don't you just love the turtlenecks they had back in those days? Man, what a drag that would be. I remember when I was a kid, I used to have to wear a turtleneck and hated it, but mine wasn't quite that bad. But his is not as bad as his. That's, that looks like something you put on the dog so it doesn't scratch itself. Um, Johann Kepler uh, basically founded the area of celestial mechanics, a branch of astronomy. Robert Boyle, the founder of chemistry. Isaac Newton, a true genius, if ever there was one, founded calculus and the law of gravity. And just as a side note, Isaac Newton wrote more in the area of theology and biblical studies than he ever did about science. He was just uh, a prolific author, and he wrote a lot about the book of Revelation. Carolus Linnaeus of Sweden founded biology, so he's a guy that we all hated in 10th grade. Michael Faraday developed the electric generator, kind of handy. Charles Babbage laid the foundations for computer science, so he's the guy that's responsible for all the problems in the world today. <laughs> Rudolf Virchow of Prussia, um, he's the founder of pathology, the study of diseases. And just think of how much better off we are today because of the discoveries that we've made in human disease. And it goes back to Rudolf Virchow, a man who was a Bible-believing Christian. <clears throat> Gregor Mendel, he was a, uh, a monk from Czechoslovakia. He laid the foundations for genetics. And think of how many people have been helped today because of 
uh, studies in genetic diseases. Uh, Louis Pasteur was a devout Roman Catholic and uh, were able to um, drink milk today and survive because of Louis Pasteur. Uh, Joseph Lister uh, developed surgical antisepsis or infection control. Before the, his time, if you had surgery, you probably might die from infection afterwards. But after Lister's discoveries, you could have surgery and actually live to tell about it. And then George Washington Carver, this is a man who's helped feed the world through his discoveries in crop production. So this idea that George Carlin says that if you can't understand science, choose religion, I don't think so. Not when you look at the, the founders of the different branches of science. Christians have always opposed harmful practices. Um, in India, there used to be a, a practice called sadi. Now, sadi uh, is this. When a, a man would die before his wife, when the man was on the funeral pyre, burning, you know, the funeral pyre was burning, he was being cremated, it was expected that the wife would jump onto the funeral pyre and die along with him and be basically self-cremated. I'm pretty sure if I asked my wife to do that, I'm thinking it would probably be a no. Um, and it should be. And some, you know, some of these women might have been in their 20s, decades of life ahead, but it was just crazy practice. They were expected to do this. And Christian missionaries came along in the 19th century, in the 1800s, and they discovered this practice. And they said, oh, no way. We are not going to have that. We're going to put an end to this. And they did. And then uh, female circumcision, a totally useless and dangerous procedure that's been um, largely eradicated because of, once again, Christian missionaries going out into the world. Christians have always elevated the arts. Okay, the world is a much more beautiful place because of the Christian influence. Here we have uh, Michelangelo's um, painting, The Creation of Adam just hanging in the Sistine Chapel. And I had the, the great pleasure of going there and seeing it many years ago. And uh, they always tell everybody to be really, the priests always say, be quiet, be quiet. Everybody gets quiet. And then a minute later, everybody's really loud. And the priests yell again. And it's just kind of goofy how they do that all day long. And then here's Leonardo's The Last Supper. Also a, a beautiful piece of artwork. Raphael's The Ascension of Christ. Okay, so we looked at Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael. Who's the fourth Ninja Turtle? <laughs> Who am I forgetting? Does anybody know? Donatello. Who? Donatello. You're good. Okay, Donatello's sculpture of St. Mark the Evangelist. Handel's Messiah music is so much better because of the Christian influence, or box Jesus, the joy of man's desiring. How about literature? That's part of the arts. The Confessions of St. Augustine, that's the first autobiography in the Western world. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Has anybody ever read this book? Yeah, this book is probably, except for the Bible, is responsible for more Christian conversions than any other book. Scripture itself is literature. It's great literature. In fact, it's the greatest literature. We think of Scripture as being a holy book, the guidebook for life, God's Word, and it is. It is. But it's also great literature. And lastly, from the get-go, Christians have always promoted this idea of love and respect and compassion for all. You know, in the ancient world, uh, the world of the ancient Middle East, Babylon, there was this um, law called the Code of Hammurabi, which basically said, if you do something to someone, we'll do the same thing back to you. Okay, it was the philosophy of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus came into the world. 
Jesus says, said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He was talking about Hammurabi's code, the law of Hammurabi. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Well, that's not what Hammurabi said. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. That's kind of a tough teaching to live up to, isn't it? But we're commanded to. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. The complete opposite of the code of Hammurabi, the code that the world lived by until Christ came onto the world scene. Now, every sermon on a Sunday morning has to have a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan the Barbarian if it's going to have a shot at being successful. Now, in the movie Conan, when, when Conan was asked, what's the greatest commandment in life? Some of you might remember this. He said, crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations or the cries of their women. And actually, that was a paraphrase of what Genghis Khan really did say. Okay, so whoever it was that wrote Conan the Barbarian must have known a little bit about Genghis Khan. But then, uh, what about Jesus? When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he had a, something a little bit different to say. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. It's a far cry from what Conan said. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, it's a, it's a greater philosophy, a greater teaching than what the world had to offer. And it's changed the world for the better in every conceivable way. Aristides was a, a Christian defender of the faith. He uh, died in uh, 134, so shortly after the time that the apostles died. He said, Christians have the commands of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself, etched into their hearts. They keep these commands looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So he's saying Christians have this blessed assurance of eternal life. That's not what the pagan world had. They do not engage in adultery or sexual immorality, and they do not bear false witness. Neither do they covet that which belongs to others. They honor father and mother, love their neighbors, judge according to justice, justice for all, and they do not do to others anything that they do not wish to be done to them. That's not how the pagans acted. They comfort those who injure them, even trying to win them over as their friends. They are eager to do good to their enemies. They uphold the teachings of Christ. They are gentle and easy to approach with an appeal. They abstain from unlawful lifestyles and all impurity. They neither neglect the widow nor oppress the orphan. We saw that. What each one has, he is willing to give freely to care for the one who has nothing. So Christian charity. If they see one of their number outcast, they take him under their roof and rejoice over him as they would over a brother. For they call themselves brothers, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. They are even prepared to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the Messiah. And countless hundreds, in fact thousands, did just that. Julian the Apostate was a, an emperor that lived after the time of Constantine. He wanted to bring back the pagan gods. That was his goal. Let's bring back the pagan gods and let's forget about this whole Christian thing. But even he admitted, Christians make us look bad. They're taking care of our poor, and we should be doing that. Okay? The Christians were taking care of the poor, poor Christians, and poor pagans. Finally, uh, Marcus Minucius Felix, he was a Roman lawyer before he converted to Christ. He said, we do not preach great things, we live them. Now, Christians do preach great things, okay? But what uh, Mark Felix was saying is, we don't just talk the talk, we walk the walk, okay? We're making this a better world because of what Christ did for us. So, the question is, has Christianity made the world a better place? 
Now, I'm not going to say that there weren't instances where Christians misbehaved, behaved badly. Okay? We think about the Crusades. We think about the Spanish Inquisition. We think about the Salem Witch Trials. Um, there have been times when those who claim to be Christians have done bad things. Okay? Sometimes they're just misguided believers. But look at human history as a whole since the time of Christ. We just did that. Has Christianity made the world a better place? I say yes, definitely. I, I trust you do as well. The end. I think all of my PowerPoints with this slide. It's kind of weird. I don't know. It's just, just like a weird thing at my church. Normally when I teach, they always, when they see this, they know it's, it's over. <laughs> Hopefully it's not over, over, but it's, it's over for the message. Um, I am going to uh, stick around after our service is over. And if anybody is here and you want to talk to me about anything uh, that I've spoken on this morning, or if you're here, you're not a believer, you're just um, kind of checking out Christianity, you're kind of seeing what it's all about, uh, you're kind of kicking the tires, so to speak, um, come see me. I'd like to talk to you. Um, I'd like to hang out with you for a few minutes. So. Uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time together. And Lord, I thank you for this congregation, this, this body of believers here in Peoria, Illinois. I have heard so many great things about them, Lord, and their friendliness, Lord, has amazed me. And uh, I just ask that you bless this body of believers. Bless them as a congregation as they reach out into the community. Bless them individually. Lord, I just ask that you uh, be with those who would like to have been here this morning but cannot for whatever reason. Uh, Lord, most of all, I just want to thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of your Son and what you have done for us. In the name of Christ, we pray.